Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. This morning, we are finishing up kind of the, the series, the, the maybe little glimpse, we can call it, that we started the, uh, the year with, talking about the church. And we are looking at the portion of it this morning that, in my opinion, speaks quite profoundly to us today in, in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves living. And that is, what should we do when we find ourselves having fierce conflict over the things that we're either free to do or free not to do. Things that we have the right to do, things that we don't have the right to do, all that good stuff. And what we're looking at this morning is a text in the Bible that describes a a cultural situation in the first century where this was particularly highlighted, but we're paying close attention to the way in which the Bible tells us to resolve these types of situations. And I think that the particular wisdom that we find in this particular passage speaks very profoundly to us today in, in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the text together this morning. Lord God, we are so grateful for the privilege of opening your word. Lord, we're thankful for the blessing of your word that you have left to us. Lord, your wisdom, your guidance, your words that still speak strongly and profoundly to us today. And Lord, this morning as we open up your word, as we study it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, would speak to our minds. Lord, that this would be more than just words on a page. This would be more than just wisdom that we carry around with us. But Lord, your word would shape and form who we are. Lord, that it would create a course of our lives, a way of being in the world that we live in that testifies to your goodness, to the goodness of your kingdom. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. This morning as we begin, I was thinking back to a certain time in my life, a time in my life that with each passing year gets a little further away than I'm comfortable with it being away. And that was my graduation from college. I attended Washington Adventist University in Tacoma Park, not too far away. Maybe some of you have been there. And kind of the tradition at Washington Adventist University over the years is that their graduation services are always held in the Sligo Church, which is on the campus of Washington Adventist University. But the year that I graduated, for whatever reason, and I'm still not sure why, whether it had to do with a sense of reverence or whether the class that I was part of was just too big and so we couldn't all fit in the church, they decided the year that I graduated that we weren't going to be using uh, Sligo Church, that we were going to be using uh, Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. And so that's where we had the graduation ceremony. And if you've ever been to a graduation ceremony for yourself, for loved ones, for that sort of thing, I always forget about this before I go to a graduation ceremony, and the moment I sit down and look at the program, it hits me like a ton of bricks, and that is, you are usually there for one person, at max two or three, yourself, a loved one, a child, a friend, a family member, whatever, and you realize that this one person you're there for is one out of several hundred that are actually being mentioned that day, right? That you have about two seconds of a two or three hour program that is relevant to you. 
And so graduation ceremonies kind of tend to do this thing where they just drag and 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 drag, right? Where you've got the preliminaries, you've got everybody that comes before the moment you're there for. You go by degree programs, by alphabetical order, and you go through all of those. And that's how this graduation ceremony, that was my graduation ceremony, was kind of going. And I was in this situation where thankfully I was stuck between two friends where the alphabet kind of worked out that way, that our last names were similar enough to, to sit with each other. But the moment came, I got up, I went, I crossed the stage to get my diploma, shook the, the president of the university's hand, and I was walking down. And the moment I was walking down, there was this kind of interaction that happened where uh, I was walking kind of across this aisle, and I noticed up on the upper level, and I, I don't remember if it was a friend or a family member, asked me in that moment to stop so that they could take a picture of me. And I turned around and looked. And the person who was behind me hadn't even gotten across the stage yet to get their diploma. So I thought, okay, I've got a second. I'll stop and I'll take this picture for you. But I had an employee of the university right there. And at that moment, in, in a tone of voice that I thought was a little dramatic for what was actually going on, this person stopped at me and said very harshly, you can't do that. You need to keep going. It's kind of this moment where I was a little taken aback, right? I'm not harming anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. And so I was holding my diploma in my hand, and so I look at this person and I said, what are you gonna do, kick me out? If you kick me out at this point, I've got my diploma, I'm good. You can actually kick me out and spare me the rest of the program and I'll probably be okay with that. But I got back to my seat and it was this, this moment where my feelings about what I had earned, right? Because this is about a moment that I had earned. A moment that I had earned, what I had accomplished, the work that I had put into it, for being serious, the amount of money that it took to get to this point, it afforded me some rights, right? It afforded me a little bit of, of privilege to the point that I had earned these things. And if I wasn't hurting anybody else, nobody was waiting for me, the person who had walked the stage behind me was not even off the stage yet, then why would I give up a little bit of my own freedom? Why would I impinge a little bit upon my own rights to not stop just for a moment for a picture, and I particularly, particularly remember in that moment getting back to my seat and being a little bit more annoyed by that whole interaction than I probably should have been. Because it was just a stupid little thing, but I remember this immense feeling of feeling something like, you cannot take something away from me on a day that I earned, a day that in a very specific way I have rights to. Because that's really what we're talking about in this moment, right? Rights. Privileges. What I am able to do. What I'm not able to do. There has been a lot of talk about rights in the world that we live in. In the past several years, but especially in the past year, all of that talk has been amplified because of a pandemic as we approach the one year anniversary of when everything kind of shut down. 
because of an incredibly divisive election season that we just came through, because of the cultural moment as a whole, we find ourselves in a specific place right now where there has been a lot of discussion, a lot of public discourse about rights. What are the basic rights shared by all human beings? Why do some groups not enjoy the rights that other groups do? Some groups are fighting for rights that they don't feel they yet have, while other groups are fighting for rights that they feel are being taken away from them. But you get the point, right? We have all heard the conversations going on around us, and I'm sure in some way that some of us have been involved in some of the conversations going on around us. But I would say there is an interesting phenomenon that happens, especially here in, in the Western world where freedoms, rights, privileges are, are a much more common commodity here than they are in other parts of the world, where we have this comfort level with what I would call macro freedoms, that is the big stuff. Things like freedom to vote for whoever you want to vote for. Things like freedom to worship when and where you want to worship as we're here on the Sabbath day. Things like freedom to post or repost whatever political statement you want to make on social media and the only backlash you will get is from your friends and loved ones and that sort of thing. We are used to these big overarching rights that are not a reality in every part of the world in which we live. But the thing is, when there is a particular comfort level with what I would call the macro freedoms, the big stuff, the big freedoms that we are used to, when there is a comfort level with those things, there is a phenomenon where we begin to look for what I would call micro-freedoms and micro-rights, where we're used to the big stuff. Because we're accustomed to the big freedoms and being able to have the privileges, the rights, to the freedom to do what we want with the big stuff, we start looking to assert a little bit of freedom a little bit of rights, a little bit of privileges in the small situations as well. And nowhere is this more evident. Nowhere do you find this happening more than in the church, in the body of Christ where I might not like the style of music that's being played. So I'm going to make a big deal of it because I have the freedom and the right to do so. I don't like the way that a particular ministry is going. I don't like the way that a particular group, uh, the way a particular group of people dresses when they come to the church. I don't like some of the decorations we do at the church. I don't like the landscaping of the church. You get the idea where we get into all of these situations where I don't like something that's happening. So I'm going to call a bunch of people and I'm going to complain about it so we can get a group to do something about it because I have the freedom and the right to do so. I know none of you have ever encountered situations like this in the body of Christ. Even just a few weeks ago, I have a friend who is a pastor far away from here who was called into a meeting with his conference president because someone 
didn't like the sermon my friend preached on that Sabbath. Because when we are so used to freedom and rights being a way of life as it is for us in this part of the world, we begin to see all of life through the lens of what I am free to do, what I have the right to do, even when that situation is sometimes just a little bit ridiculous. Where my life becomes about my freedom, what I want, what I can do. But there's a particular passage of the Bible where we are confronted with this exact way of thinking, this same way of thinking. And the way that this text that we're looking at this morning resolves, what it tells us to do with these types of situations, it's not only a little bit surprising, it's also a little bit difficult for us even today in the 21st century. This morning we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, and at this point we're going to verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul, and he says this. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we all are, or, sorry, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And what we see the Bible addressing here is an issue that we see come up more than once in the New Testament, but specifically we see it come up several times in Paul's writings, and that is, what should we do about food, but specifically meat is what we're talking about here. What should we do with meat that has been offered, sacrificed to idols? And that's not really that much of a pressing question to you and I, because it doesn't really have that much of a modern cognate in the world that you and I live in, where this is a situation the Bible addresses that is very removed from life as you and I experience it. But in the ancient world, in this kind of budding early first century Christianity, this issue of whether or not we should eat meat that was sacrificed to idols was an incredibly divisive issue. And specifically here in Corinth, where this church is that's having so much controversy over this issue, it was an especially pressing issue. Because in the ancient world, meat was actually a commodity. It was something that you could really only buy if you had a pretty decent amount of money because it was expensive. If you were an average person making an average amount of money, you probably could not afford to eat meat that much in the ancient world. But in Corinth, here where Paul is writing this letter to this church, in Corinth there was a specific festival, a, a celebration that happened once a year that made meat a little bit more accessible to people than it usually was. Once a year, 
there was a big celebration which would include a portion of the, the celebration, a portion of the festival that, that had a, a, a specific time cut out where everyone would go and worship the Greek god Apollo. And so they would sacrifice, they would go to the temple of Apollo in Corinth, and they would sacrifice hundreds of animals at the same time in this kind of big worship of this, this God, this big celebration. They would sacrifice all of these animals at once. So much so that there are some ancient sources that tell us that the blood from the animals would run down the steps and down the hill where the temple was all the way into the market. This was how many animals were sacrificed at the same time. As part of this big celebration happened once a year. And then when this part of the celebration was over, in a world where refrigeration is not a thing, right? They would have to take all of the meat from these animals that had been sacrificed, so many animals, and they would have to take it to the market and sell it very quickly before it all spoiled. And because they had to sell it quickly, that meant that they sold it for a lot cheaper than it usually was. So people who were not able to buy meat for most of the year, this one time of year, including people who were followers of this Jesus, people who were part of this first century church in Corinth that had been started by the Apostle Paul, even these people were able to go and buy meat from the market because they could afford it this one time of year. Probably some Jews in this church, probably some Gentiles who had converted from the paganism of the Greco-Roman world around them, people who had used to take part in this festival religiously, that they were involved in this worship to the Greek god Apollo. And this simple act of buying meat became a source of controversy in the Corinthian church because for some who bought this meat, they looked at it and said, this is not a big deal, right? Apollo does not actually exist. So who cares that these animals were killed in a ritualistic way because the ritual honoring the thing that these animals were sacrificed to doesn't even exist. So let's buy, let's eat, let's enjoy. But then you had another group in the church, a group that probably used to partake in that worship to the, to the Greco-Roman god Apollo, partook in that festival religiously, who saw all of this happening and because of the lives that they used to live, the lives that they had come out of, they looked at this situation and what they saw was by buying this meat and eating this meat, you are partaking in the worship of another God. So you have two groups, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. You have two groups. One that says... It's not that big of a deal to eat the meat. Buy it, do it, enjoy it. Another group says eating the meat is essentially participating in the worship of another God. And this creates conflict. 
conflict that becomes so bad that it makes its way all the way back to the Apostle Paul, who's not even in Corinth anymore, who's probably not even in the same region anymore. And Paul writes back to them. And he tells them pretty definitively his whole take on this subject. You go to verse 4 of this particular chapter. This is what Paul himself says. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul pretty definitively here takes the side that this God to whom these animals were offered is not real. And so because this God is not real, these animals were not sacrificed to anything, and therefore the meat is good to eat. And you can probably imagine the reaction that the church had when they gathered together to hear Paul's letter read to them aloud. Maybe some knowing looks. Maybe some we-told-you-sos. Maybe a few exchanges of one day you'll understand things the way we understand things. Because this is, after all, the same Paul who said this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. And you have the pro-meat people in the church saying to the anti-meat people, see, all that you all were trying to do was take away our God-given freedom the freedom that God told us was ours and that we would never again submit to this yoke of slavery. That we are free, and so we are going to remain free. But the problem for them is Paul keeps going. And the way that Paul continues is not exactly to the liking of the people who have just been pleased by the point that he made. This is continuing on in Corinthians chapter 8. It says, however... There's always a however, right? However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are, not, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Paul reiterates, there is another side to the debate, and that they might even have a valid reason for their gripe, even if it's one that he disagrees with. But then he keeps going. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you do what? You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat 
meet, lest I make my brother stumble. You see what Paul just did with this entire situation? Do I believe that I have the freedom to eat this meat? Yes. Do I believe that God has shown me this way of freedom that he desires for all people? Yes. Are there some people who are maybe not so far along in this journey that they have not yet experienced that freedom? Yes. So, for the sake of those people, despite the fact that they might have a weak conscience, despite the fact that they have not found the same freedom that you have, despite the fact that there is nothing inherently wrong with eating this meat for the sake of that person, for the sake of their conscience, for the sake of their journey into this freedom, I will forgo my own freedom and not eat this meat. Even though I have the right and the freedom to do so. Because it is becoming a stumbling block for my weaker brother or sister in the faith, I will not eat it. I will not do something that will hold somebody else back. In fact, Paul spells all of this out quite clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, two verses later, or two chapters later, starting verse 23. He says, all things are lawful, sure, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If any, if any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Even though it's lawful, Paul says, even though it is perfectly within your rights, even though you are free to do it, if it is something that is going to destroy the conscience of your brother or sister in Christ, then don't do it. What Paul is highlighting here is a reality of what life in Christ looks like in fundamental form and the way that it expresses itself in the community and then eventually the wider world. Where for Paul, following Jesus, quite simply, looks like doing what Jesus did. And Jesus very specifically gave up his own rights and his own privileges from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And for Paul's theology, if this is what Jesus did, gave up something that was his by right, 
something that he had the right to, did not exploit it for his own advantage. If this is what Jesus did, then this means that this is also what we should do for one another. Not take advantage of our rights, our freedoms, our privileges, if it means wounding someone else. But rather, sacrificing for the sake of that weaker person. Becoming weak specifically for them as Jesus became weak for us. This is a virtue that was not celebrated in the ancient world. This is a virtue that is not celebrated in our world. We want to bulldoze over those opponents who oppose us, right? Those who disagree with us. We want to combat them with strength, with good arguments, with logic that can't be defeated, with common sense, as I've heard lots of people saying these days. We do not want to willingly lay down and let them win, yet this is precisely what Paul is telling the church to do with this particular conflict. If it offends, if it hurts, if it wounds the conscience of your weaker brother or sister, then simply don't do it. But it has to also be acknowledged here. If Paul is flipping this traditional power structure on its head, right? Because this is really a power structure that we're talking about. Those who have freedom and know what that freedom brings, dictating what those who haven't quite experienced it, the way that they're living. If Paul is flipping this particular power structure on its head, where it is the duty of the stronger to give up in order to cater to the weaker, then it should also be said that doing this in and of itself sets up a different kind of power structure where now it's the weaker who have a little bit more weight than the stronger, right? Where maybe we just tipped the scales a little bit and we put one side heavier than the other side. But just like any power structure, including the traditional one with the stronger having more authority than the weaker, any power structure is open to be abused, it is very possible to misuse any power structure, even the one that Paul is describing here, where those who are weaker have more weight than those who are stronger, or the one who is weaker, offended, disagreeable, whose conscience is wounded. It is possible for them to stay in that position within the body of Christ because it means that they will continually get what they want. And the point that Paul is making here is not one in which the strong sacrifices for the, the weak, where the strong conscience sacrifices for the weak conscience so that the weak conscience can stay weak. The point that Paul is making is that the strong conscience sacrifices its freedoms and its rights for the weak conscience while the weak conscience continues its journey into freedom so that one day it will eventually itself become strong. 
You see what he's trying to do here? The strong doesn't sacrifice for the weak so the weak can stay weak and continue to get things the way that they want them. What Paul is calling them to do is for the strong to sacrifice for the weak so that the weak can journey into freedom so that they themselves can eventually become strong. So that they can journey into this freedom that God has called them with. This freedom that God has called them to. What the Bible is calling both sides of this divide to do is to grow with one another. For one side, that means giving up rights and freedom. For the other side, that means growing from weak consciences into strong consciences. But the point being, neither side remains where it is. Both sides have to move. And both sides have to grow. What the Bible is putting before this particular body of Christ in Corinth, and what I believe it still puts before the body of Christ in the 21st century is this. In the body of Christ, it is the responsibility of all of us to grow with one another and to make each other healthier, more mature followers of Jesus. And this doesn't take place by telling one another, hey, you've got to get to where I am. You've got to give up the things you're struggling with and get to where I've been because I've been doing this for a long time. This takes place by intentionally doing what we need to do to move to where they are, whether they're weak or strong. Where if we are strong, it means making ourselves weaker. Or if we are weak, it means making ourselves stronger. It's a call for those in the body of Christ to sacrifice for the sake of one another so that we can grow with one another, so that we can be more mature, healthy followers of Jesus. And this is a reality that, quite frankly, we do not see happen much at all in our world. But also, truthfully, we don't see it happening much in the body of Christ. Because the way that life functions, as you and I experience it, is that we have our beliefs, our opinions, the things that, that, that we think are ours by right, the things that we have freedom for, and the way that we defend those things, express those things, the way that we talk about those things, is by loudly denouncing anybody that disagrees with us. We do this when it comes to politics. We do this when it comes to the pandemic. We do this when sometimes within the church, we largely talk about those outside the church, where within the church, there are also all sorts of power struggles based on the exact same things. And in response to all of these things, Paul's counsel to the Corinthians is largely ignored. 
even by those of us in the body of Christ. And to make matters even worse, many times when Christians do use this language of weak consciences, of stumbling blocks, we do so in situations that aren't even remotely close to what Paul was addressing here. The only time that I heard this specific phrase of Paul's use, don't be a stumbling block to another believer, was when I was growing up and attending an evangelical high school. I heard this language of weak consciences and stumbling blocks only being applied to women and what they wore so that they would not be a stumbling block to their brothers in Christ, never telling anything or never telling men, hey, first of all, why don't you stop being a creep and taking your responsibility for projecting your own messed up self onto a woman or anything remotely close to Jesus's words, right? If your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it, pluck it out. This is the only situation in which I have ever heard Paul's language about stumbling blocks used in the Christian church, and it's largely misused in such a way to keep a certain power structure in place. To make the point, our relation to this particular life-giving portion of the Bible, this particular text, is either to A, ignore it, to preserve whatever power structure we're in, or B, twist it in such a way that it becomes harmful to one specific group while preserving the messed up dynamic of another group. But suffice it all to say, all of this misses the point that Paul is making in this text. The point that in the body of Christ, it is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to become more like this Jesus in that we are willing to sacrifice our rights and our freedoms for one another. Because this is an incredibly difficult call for all of us to fulfill. It is a call for us to be equally concerned with one another in this body. It is a call for us to lovingly, painstakingly, sacrificially help one another grow as healthy and mature disciples of Jesus. For some of us, that means sacrificing our freedoms, which is an almost heretical thing to say in the part of the world in which we live. It means sacrificing our freedoms and our rights for the sake of one another. For others of us, it means recognizing that someone else has sacrificed freedoms and rights for us in order to give us room to grow into freedom, in order to grow into a strong conscience. At its root, this is a call for us to stop seeing life together as something that we merely live on our own, with our own interests, with our own opinions at stake, with our own freedoms and rights at stake. 
This is a call for us to see life together in the body of Christ as something that we live collectively. The body of Christ is not an individual. The body of Christ is made up of multiple individuals, but it is still one body. And in this body, what we are called to do is serve one another in different ways. And when we serve one another, we serve the world around us. Because what we do in here, life as we live it in here, life as we experience it in here, is life that we then extend to the world around us. We extend an invitation to a better life, a better community, a better kingdom. And it starts by living that kingdom in here with one another. Growing with one another. Helping each other become mature, healthy disciples of Jesus. So the question becomes, where are you in your journey this morning? Do you have a strong conscience? Or do you have a weak conscience? Do you need to sacrifice your freedoms and your rights for the sake of another? Or do you need to grow because someone else has sacrificed their rights for you? Wherever we are, may God help us as we help one another grow. And that as we learn to serve one another, we would also learn to serve the world around us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are thankful that you are a God who gave up your own rights, your own privileges, your own freedoms for us. Lord, you gave them up for us so that you could bring us onto this journey of freedom, into this journey of following you, of being part of your kingdom. And Lord, in a very simple way, you have called us to do the exact thing for one another. Lord, that we would sacrifice for one another, that we would be so committed to one another that we would help each other grow. That if it means sacrificing for one another, we would sacrifice. But Lord, if it means recognizing that someone else has sacrificed for us, Lord, that we would grow in order to honor that sacrifice. Lord, that the love that we build between us in the body of Christ would be love that is not found anywhere else in the world. That the community of the body of Christ would not be a community that is found anywhere else in the world. But Lord, we would truly be the body of Christ in that we do for one another what you would do for us that we do for the world what you would do for them. And so we pray that you would give us grace. We pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us strength. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.